Well, we are continuing our sermon series through 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Um, and as we've been made aware of along the way, the Apostle John, um, he was likely an old man by the time that he, he wrote these letters. He writes as a spiritual father to, to an audience that he repeatedly f- refers to as his little children. And he's informing his readers that they're living in the last hour. But he doesn't mean, though, that, that the physical universe is coming to an end. He's, he's talking about the end of the, of the old covenant world, the old covenant era. See, there, were, there was a massive shift taking place as the, the kingdom of God expanded beyond the borders of, of Israel. And the early Christians were facing persecution from the outside and division from the inside. So, so John speaks to that and he offers a number of different reminders and encouragements to these churches in crisis. In chapter 1, John reminds us of the fellowship that we share with the triune God, which is a fellowship of light. Right? And, and over the next couple chapters, he, he calls us to walk in the light, to, to abide in the light, and to obey the command of Jesus to, to love one another. See, when the, when the church functions, when we function like, like a loving, tight-knit family, then, then we're better able to withstand false antichrist teaching. We are, we are better able to resist the corrupt desires and, and influences of the world, or as John calls them, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life. And, and we're, we're better able to test the spirits, as it says in chapter 4. And in the end, communities of light who walk and abide in the light, who follow in the footsteps of a crucified Messiah, will overcome. We will triumph. And today, as, as we close out 1 John, we'll, we'll consider what the triumphant Christian life looks like. And John will make his, his final charge to us in this letter to the church to, to remind us of some very consequential truths. So if you would read with me uh, 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. So John begins the the end of his letter with the continued aim of of instilling confidence in his reader. Uh, Throughout his letter, John has been imploring this confidence, specifically confidence before God. For one, he wants them and us to have confidence when Jesus comes and says that this is accomplished by abiding in Jesus. He says back in chapter 2, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. So I I think it's really easy to imagine John here, especially as an old man, really kind of leaning in close, pulling us in uh, here in this last section to make sure we've been paying attention, right? This this is why I've written all this. This is why I've laid out the the, the false teachers and, and who the true Christ is so that you have confidence in him and so live appropriately. We see here that that this confidence is for those who believe in Jesus. And all through his letter, John has given testimony to the true Christ. He says, Jesus is he who was from the beginning. Jesus is the son of God. 
Jesus was most truly and fully man. He is our advocate with the Father. John calls Jesus the expiation for our sins, meaning that he restores right relationship to God that has been broken because of our sin. And as as a consequence of all this, through Jesus Christ, men who believe have life, both now and eternal. As it says in in verse 13, you have eternal life. It's not something in the future that we hope for. It exists now. Essentially, John is, is calling us to hold fast in our faith. It's a, it's a call to persevere. We, we know these things. We will only benefit in our perseverance of faith in Jesus, who is our life. John sees that confidence is imperative for, for us as Christians for multiple reasons, but here he speaks specifically of prayer. And once earlier in his letter, we see John tying confidence directly to prayer. He says back in chapter 3, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. Now, the specific topic of prayer is certainly a sermon or entire sermon series for another time, but I do want to say a few things. Um, Notice that, that this confidence leads to asking and receiving. Verses 14 and 15. But the asking um, and even the receiving is, is very specifically according to his will. Right? Not, not our will, his will. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right? I know we sing this in the Lord's Prayer every week, and, and if you grew up in, in the church, you've likely heard this preached on a number of times. Um, it's also a pretty big deal in, in the Bible. But, I, I mean, we hear it so much because it's hard for us to get through our dumb heads, right? Uh, it, it, it's easy for us to only be concerned with our will before God. We, we can even sometimes tend to have a, have a fatalistic view regarding his will. Like, I mean, he's going to accomplish his will whether I pray or not, right? But God wants us to see and discern his will through his word and by knowing Jesus, and then to pray his will into action. That's why he's given us confidence in Christ, so that we can approach him. When John wrote this letter, he, he may very well have had Jesus' own words in mind, which, which he wrote down, we just read in the Gospel of John, Jesus said, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. When, when we abide in Jesus, living in him day by day, then our will becomes more and more and more aligned with his will. And then what we ask and what we desire will more and more and more be according to his will. And we'll see answered prayer in new and beautiful ways. Verse 15. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we ask of him. So if we have that confidence that we we know that what we ask according to his will will receive, then, then what kind of requests will we make then? So here comes verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. 
There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. So John's pretty quick here to remind us that he's not just talking about our own cute little personal relationship with Jesus, right? He's been addressing his readers as family throughout the letter. And, and here in his parting words, we're reminded to remain as family and to love one another as such. It's, it's very significant that when John speaks about prayer here, it's not prayer for ourselves, it's, it's prayer for one another. Here in, in, here, in the body of Christ, in the local church, Christian to Christian, when we see sin in each other's lives, we are to pray for one another, knowing, there's that confidence, knowing that Jesus saves. When we pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ, knowing that even as sin is a deadly, deadly thing that, that can only be remedied by the blood of Christ, we, we know that those who are his will be his, and, and their sins forgiven. So this implies that we all share responsibility for one another's sins. And, and our, our tendency as modern, um, just plain sinful people, is to leave one another alone, especially when it comes to sin. If we see someone doing, someone doing something we don't like or we know is wrong, we, we withdraw. We, we keep our distance. That's their problem, not mine. We, we don't want to take responsibility for the, for the sins of our brothers and sisters, but that's not the portrait of life in the church family that John gives. He tells us that we are to pray for one another when we see someone in sin. And we should take that as our responsibility and act honorably in that call. The New Testament makes it clear that, that we're to intercede to, or to intervene to correct a sinning sibling. Jesus said in Matthew 5 that if our brother sins against us, we should rebuke him. And Paul says in Galatians 6 that those who are spiritual are called to correct and restore Christians who are wandering. Now, before you start making a list in your head, what John is not doing is giving us all license to constantly call one another out when, when our feelings get hurt and beat each other over the head with the Bible and to sh- shaming one another into repentance. That, that's not what he's doing. What he's laying out is, is correction that is tempered by love and prayer. But, but he makes it clear that, it, that because of love, it begins with prayer. Don't correct anyone concerning their sin if you haven't first prayed for their sin. Honestly, we, we should be honored by this responsibility. As Christians, we have a tremendous privilege of bearing our brothers and sisters to the throne of grace. Here's a, just a quick aside, uh, an implication of this that really convicted me this week. It, it doesn't say it explicitly here, but I think it still applies. When we see our children's sin, especially repeated sin, are we praying for them? Are we considering the health of their souls and lifting them up in prayer before we jump to correction? Well, that's not practical. It's biblical. We should bear our brothers and sisters to the throne of grace. We naturally pray for those who are sick, right? 
So, so we should just as naturally pray for those who are straying away from God. It should be just as natural to pray for the cure of the soul as it is to pray for the cure of the body. Now, he, he says something here that's very striking that I'm sure perked your ears up. He says, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. And at, at, at first reading, this can be shocking or uh, terrifying, or maybe you're just mad at John for not just saying what it is. Just tell me what the one sin is. Um, I, I won't be able to say all that needs to be said about this, but I do want to say a few things. Um, in the Old Testament, we see that there, there are two types of sin that had a direct correlation to the sacrificial system that God set up for his people. There, there were sins of, of ignorance, which one committed unknowingly or at least um, not deliberately. And, and then there were, there were high-handed and intentional sins committed in defiance against God and even one's neighbor. And it was for the first kind of sin that, that sacrifice could atone. But, but for the sins of the wicked heart and the high hand, no, no sacrifice could atone. So, so what's, what's the big reveal here? What's, what's the big sin that leads to death? I, I think if we, if we look at the context here, I think we can safely interpret that this sin that leads to death is, is not the sin that you and I experience daily when, when our sinful hearts get the best of us, or, or even when we wander for a time, but, but rather as, as apostasy by which someone wholly, wholly alienates themselves from God in, in deliberate defiance. We'll see in, in verse 18 that, that the children of God do not keep on sinning, which is to say that they don't forsake God and surrender themselves to Satan to be his slaves. Even more specifically in this context, John has his opponents in view, those who went out from us, he says in chapter 2. He, he's referring to the false teachers who have not only left the fellowship and, and teach without authority, but they've also abandoned faith in Jesus. See, those who have been in the new covenant, who have tasted the gifts of God and the fruits of Christ's work and given up those gifts, who have, who have shared in the Spirit and then, and then rejected the Spirit, who have confessed Jesus and then turned from Jesus and become his enemies. These cannot be renewed. And, and John says that we ought not pray for them. God says multiple times in the Old Testament to, to his prophet regarding rebellious, wicked people, do not pray for them. This is not an easy truth, but it is true. Real quick, I'll, I'll say one last thing uh, before we kind of get sloppy with it and start to point fingers. Not that any of us would ever do that. Um, this is not normative. This is not the standard. We, we should be slow to, to make this call and to not expect apostasy. John Calvin said it well. He says, if it seems to be made clear as though God has pointed it out by his finger that someone has fallen away beyond hope, we ought not contend with the just judgment of God or seek to be more merciful than he is. Jesus told the story of the, 
prodigal son for a very profound reason. As God has made clear to us the infinite riches of his grace in Christ and calls us to be merciful through his own example, then then we ought not rashly conclude that anyone has brought on himself the judgment of eternal death, but rather love. Love for one another, as John has drilled down on, should, should dispose us to hope well. So if you have these people in your life, um, and if you haven't yet, you will, there's, there's a balance of discerning God's judgment, but assuming his grace. I would encourage you to err toward a posture of, of hoping well. Again, as I said earlier, as Christians, we have a tremendous privilege of bearing our brothers and sisters to the throne of grace. We heard a perfect example of this in the reading earlier of Abraham interceding on behalf of Lot and his family. Do that. Hope well and intercede boldly. Okay, that's all I'm going to say about that. Let's look at this last section where, where I think John is really going to lean in close and give us his final charge here. So verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. So to put this last section in in the context of the whole passage we're looking at today, John, he starts off with, with encouraging us that our faith and belief in Jesus gives us confidence before God. Right? And, and then he gives us this practical application for, for that confidence, how, how to love one another as family, how to love one another well by praying for one another in confidence before God. And now he's saying because of that confidence before God, here is the assurance that, that we now hold. You probably noticed that, that John uses we know three times in the last few verses. And this, this knowing that he speaks of is, is a knowledge that it, it's, it's graciously granted to us by God through Jesus as a byproduct of our faith in him. So as John lays out these three cases of knowing, he's speaking of what God has granted to us as his children. The first thing he lays out is, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. I mentioned this earlier, but he's he's not saying that Christians are perfect and never sin. What he's saying is that we do not live in habitual sin and, and give our lives over to evil and ruin. That's not what the Christian does. Instead, we, we are to confidently abide in Christ, knowing that, that when we sin, there is forgiveness because of him, and the evil one can't touch us. J- just a quick clarifying point here. The word touch that he uses, according to Greek scholars, is, is something much stronger than just like a reaching out and tag you're it. Uh, it. It means to cling or to take hold of. The only other place that John uses the same word is in uh, his gospel, John chapter 20, where Jesus tells Mary to not cling to him. 
Because we are born of God, Satan cannot attach himself to us or or cling to us in the sense that he can in the life of someone who is not born of God. So take comfort in that. Have confidence in that. Now, don't get me wrong. As children of God, we don't remain unscathed by the work of Satan, but, but we can defend against his attacks by, by the shield of faith so that they don't penetrate into the heart. Yes? You with me? Okay, the, the next thing John says is, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We could also read this as, even though the world lies in the power of the evil one, we know that we are from God. Our source of being is God. That is not the case for the world. I certainly don't want this to be interpreted as an us versus the world campaign because um, we're still here now and it matters how we live and it matters that we not disconnect ourselves from the world but that we rest in the knowledge that we are from God and go confidently into the world to proclaim his glory. That, that's John's charge to us. I was in Birmingham a couple weeks ago, um, and while I was there, I visited the Civil Rights Museum. Um, I, don't, I don't think it will be surprising to hear that it was a very uh, heavy and, and sobering experience. Uh, but one section was, was particularly overwhelming for me. Um, there was a, a window that, that looked out onto a park across the street where in, in 1963, children participated in a peaceful protest uh, that eventually led to police officers responding violently with dogs and and water. Uh, And in front of that display, there was a quote from an account of a mother, Yvonne Turner. And this is what it said. I was just across the street and I could see my son and the other children when they came out of the church. I ran to him and I told him they have dogs up there today. And they have water. He said, we know. We're going anyway. That's the posture I believe John wants us to have. This is precisely why he's writing. That, that we would know that we're from God. And when we abide in Jesus, we can approach the world and say, we know we're going anyway. And go out and fight the darkness with the light that has come to dwell among us. This is why we gather around tables in homes around the neighborhood of Oak Forest every Sunday evening and say that we're constantly aiming to multiply, to bring more to the feast. Together, we are abiding in Christ and approaching our immediate worlds in confidence that his light will shine. Finally, he says, We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. As I mentioned in the beginning, John John is really obsessed over getting across to his readers the true Christ. And, and it really implored us to keep away from anything or anyone that might take Christ's rightful place in our lives. So then when we see John leaving his, his readers, his, his children, as it were, with, with the exhortation to keep themselves from idols, he's saying that, that anything else that we might pledge our allegiance to 
comes against who Jesus is. All of it, nonsense compared to him. So so to wrap up what John is saying here, um, as children of God, we have this confidence in Christ. We know that that when we love one another by, by praying for one another in faith, we will see God give life. We know that, that we are from God and have been delivered from Satan who controls the world so that we can go out boldly and proclaim his glory. And we know that Jesus has come to give us understanding and to give us eternal life. So, we hold fast to Christ with confidence before God and together live and love boldly as his church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you, would you open our eyes to the confidence that, that we possess in Christ? Help us to, to always abide in him and that the fruit of that would be loving each other boldly, praying for one another and bearing one another to the throne of grace. Thank you that we can rest in the assurance of eternal life through Christ. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.